It's a great honor and, and uh, uh, joy to be with you guys today. I uh, would say welcome to Billings. That's what I usually do as, as mayor, except that I think you've been here a lot more than I have uh, the last few days. I've been in uh, Butte for a convention of the Montana uh, uh, League of Cities and Towns, and so I just kind of got in late last night. Um, I'll be looking at these slides uh, for the first time for you, but only the second time for, for me. It's not church, so if anybody is back there and wants to come in and, and get uh, closer to the screen, help yourself at any time, I promise I, I won't pass the hat or give an altar call, so uh, at any time, feel free to uh, move on in closer or closer to one of those, those screens. Um, I do have a regret that I was, I've been in Butte, and so I haven't been able to attend the conference. I, I looked through the, the great schedule and the booklet, and I was going to look and see if there were some things that I could mention specifically that I wish I'd been able to attend. Then I started looking and said, God, I wish I could have been at all of those things. There really wasn't anything I, I would have wanted to miss. So I really appreciate uh, the opportunity, and uh, this is a, a, a great uh, privilege for me. Um, everyone in this room enjoys history, uh, especially Montana history, or you wouldn't be here today. And I suspect that for some of you, in, uh, enjoyment has probably crossed the line and is now bordering into obsession uh, over many years, many thousands of dollars, and maybe even several spouses uh, ago. Uh, so given our common interest in uh, Montana history, I hope you'll indulge me if I tell you a little bit about my own history uh, when it comes to history. As a kid growing up in Bozeman, I enjoyed uh, and gravitated to books, but especially books and movies that were about historical events, especially in the Old West. My father said that he would pay for me to go to an expensive out-of-state college, uh, but only if I was going to be a doctor or a lawyer. And since I hate the sight of blood, that uh, only left one option. When I got to college, I was pretty sure I was going to be either a government or an English major, and so I took lots of classes in those two areas. And we had to declare our major in sophomore year, and we were coming up halfway through sophomore year, and I had determined that uh, political theory was boring, and English literature was a little too ephemeral for me. So on a lark, I took a class in medieval European history. And with only that one class as my touchstone, I followed my gut and declared myself a history major. It was one of the best decisions I ever made, and I've never uh, looked back or regretted that one bit at all. After graduation, I uh, was lucky enough to discover one of the scarcest treasures that, any, uh, ha that has ever been unearthed by any history major, a job. <laughs> and, and not just any job, but a job where I was paid to actually do uh, historical research. And it wasn't a lot, but back then $7 an hour seemed like a princely sum, and I was very much uh, appreciative of having that job. And after working for several years on that project, the 20-year, 14-volume uh, papers of Daniel Webster at Dartmouth College, Anne and I moved to New York City. I went to law school and assumed that my interests would become, uh, my interest in history would be displaced in favor of much more practical uh, pursuits. And almost certainly that would have happened, except that in 1991 we moved back to Montana and to Billings, where I was introduced to new stories of the West uh, involving the Upsalaga, uh, Lakota, Nez Perce, Custer, William Clark, Northern Pacific Railroad, Charlie Bear, P.B. Boss, Frederick Billings, uh, the list goes on, including Yellowstone Kelly. Sometime in the 1990s, I met a dealer, some would say a drug dealer, uh, of dangerous goods. His name was Tom Minkler, uh, and he got me hooked on buying and collecting antique maps of Montana. 
uh, an addiction that I've had and have not been able to lick for more than 20 years now. I, I don't have to convince any of you of the value of preserving our history and telling the stories of Montana long ago. Instead, I just want to thank each of you uh, for your dedication, your hard work, and sometimes the thousands, if not millions of dollars that you as collectors, researchers, museum administrators, educators, and others uh, that you've devoted over many, many years, sometimes for some of you a lifetime, to preserving and passing on to others our history, my history and the history of future generations. So. Uh, thank you for the roles that you have played in that a very important process. Since we moved to Montana in 1991, Ann and I have both been involved here in Billings with a number of projects and organizations intended to improve the quality of life uh, and vitality and economic vitality of Billings. For the last 10 years or so, I've also been on the board of the Billings Chamber of Commerce and about five years ago, uh, the, the chamber asked me to spearhead efforts to clean up the grave of the famous 19th century front, frontiersman, uh, Luther Sage Yellowstone, or nicknamed Yellowstone Kelly, located on the high point of the Rim Rocks overlooking Billings, close to Metro. Back then, and uh, back then neither the chamber nor I uh, knew anything about Yellowstone Kelly or what we were getting into. So naturally, I said yes. Um, because for me, this project was the perfect marriage of two great passions, history and community development. And that finally uh, brings me to my uh, topic today, um, which is to talk about how history can be used as a tool of economic development and specifically what we've been doing here in the Yellowstone Valley. Montana and cities like Billings are constantly on the hunt for clean business and effective economic development tools that create jobs and improve our quality of life. Improving that quality of life is critical to our economic development because quality of life means workforce. It means people. It means growth. It means an expanding tax base. Without that, here in Yellowstone, or in Billings, it's estimated that in the next 10 years, we may have to fill as many as 50,000 jobs because of the aging out baby boomers and our natural growth rate. To do that, we're gonna have to attract and retain a lot of young people between the ages of 20 and 40. One, in today's world where you've got 3% unemployment, more and more people decide where they want to work and then look for a job there, as opposed to moving where they can only find a job. So quality of life really matters. In this search for clean industry that'll drive our economy, tourism fits the bill really well. When this mayor looks out over this audience, frankly, I see dollar signs. <laughs> In your eyes, you know, like in the cartoons, you kind of, you know. Uh, each year, um, out-of-town visitors, conventioneers, medical patients, shoppers, fairgoers bring more than $400 million into the Billings economy. On average, each one of you uh, will spend about $200 per day while you're in Billings, or in Butte, or Great Falls, uh, or Miles City. Tourism matters, and that's where history-based tourism comes in. If we can convince each of you to spend an extra day or even a half a day in Billings to see the Yellowstone Kelly Interpretive Site, Pictograph Caves, the Canyon Creek Battlefield Site, Pompey's Pillar, our local museums, Little Bighorn Battlefield, you name it, then we can potentially add millions of dollars to our economy. And if you do the same in your different community, together we can create a powerful statewide brand that uh, makes Montana the place to experience not just the outdoors and our spectacular natural history, but also the historical Old West. 
as that term can be interpreted by hundreds of different communities, tribes, and individuals around the state. That's the vision, uh, but I see at least two storm clouds on the horizon that give me pause. First, I can't help, and I will eventually get to some kind of uh, uh, sexy pictures here a little bit, so just bear with me a little bit. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to mention these, these two troubling areas. One, um, I can't help but wonder uh, in my private thoughts, and, and I, I guess in the inner sanctum of this room, whether history really matters anymore, especially for anyone under 30. Uh, in a world, in fact, maybe that'd be good. Who's under 30? And, uh, oh, God bless you. What are we? <laughs> Two? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so in a world of constant entertainment, Netflix, Instagram, smartphones, 24-hour news cycles, moment-by-moment -moment political sparring on Twitter, uh, you name it, where does history fit in? And there's no doubt that the world has changed. Let me give you an illustration of that. This is a book, many of you have undoubtedly seen it. It's called The History of Montana Illustrated. 1,300 pages, three and a half inches thick. What's fascinating about this book for me is not so much the stories, the history of our state that it tells, it's one date on the cover. And that date is, many of you know it, 1885. The History of Montana Illustrated 1885. Four years because before we become a territory, we have a 1,300-page book on the history of Montana. That's just mind-boggling to me. In those days, people, I think, knew they were participating in something historic. They, they, they valued their family histories. They, they valued uh, history in a, in a different way. So I'm not sure today exactly how we're going to compete with Hollywood, Instagram, and Twitter uh, for the attention of 20-somethings, but I suspect that the answer is going to look a lot less like this dusty 1,300-page book and a lot more like 15-minute multi-sensory video clips made by Hollywood and delivered via Facebook. That's for you to figure out. Second storm cloud. I'm not sure that state and local government is on our side, at least to the extent that it might have been in the past. That's not because government officials wish us ill or have or wish you ill or have any less appreciation for history than the average Montana citizen, but it is because preserving and communicating history only represents cost for them and not an immediate, measurable, economic benefit. Why is that? Well, unlike Europe and other parts of the world, our tax structure and our tourism infrastructure does not give state or local government a significant economic incentive to preserve our history and tell our stories. The legislature's failure to invest in the historical society's building in Helena is proof of that, of course, but also take Billings as an example. Although I'm uh, glad that you're here to support our businesses and enrich our cultural environment, uh, when you're gone on Monday or tomorrow, the coffers of the city of Billings will have no additional identifiable money to show that you were here. Nothing, zero. Our local tax structure relies on taxing bricks and mortar just as we have for the last 100 years. Even though more and more of our local wealth is generated working on our computers in the basement of our houses. But the cost of local government has not gone down even if our tax base is becoming more limited. If 5,000 people come to Billings to hear President Trump or 30,000 to see Garth Brooks, we will definitely have substantial additional costs 
in the form of police overtime, more ambulance calls, wear and tear on our streets. So compare Billings' experience with Sioux Falls, South Dakota, or Oklahoma City, each of which has a two-cent local sales tax that raises millions of dollars each year, and that those cities use to build and maintain museums, parks, zoos, and other local attractions that in turn attract more visitors and raise more revenue for the city. Or Iceland, where I was in July, where Ann and I were in July, which has a 24% value-added tax on virtually everything and where tourism is booming. Now, I'm not advocating a 24% uh, value-added tax. Um, don't shoot me. Uh, and, and by the way, Montana in our Constitution has a cap of 4% on our non-existent sales tax, just in case. But I am a fan of, of changing state law so that cities in Montana can decide for themselves whether they want to enact a small tax on alcohol, prepared meals, rental cars, and the like so that we can invest in our recreational and historical infrastructure and align the economic interests of local government with the economic interests of our local businesses and nonprofit organizations. Um, I know I've gone aside on that, but uh, it, this is about economic development, so I couldn't help myself. But enough about all that serious stuff. Uh, let's take a trip up to the top of the rims and see the Yellowstone Kelly interpretive site, tell you a little bit about how that came about, and then let's come back down onto the Yellowstone River and I'll try to relive uh, briefly just a small part of William Clark's travels through the Yellowstone Valley. The Yellowstone Kelly interpretive site is located up on top of the rims, uh, at the, the high point up here. It's along what we hope will eventually be a 26-mile, what we call the Heritage Trail, but or the Marathon Loop. The dotted lines have not yet been connected because of, you guessed it, a lack of money. Um, the Kelly site is just one of many his, historically significant places along the perimeter of this trail system, including uh, the original town site of Colson, founded in 1877, named after the Colson Packet Company, the steamship company. Uh, the Emil Jones uh, Massacre site from 1823, um, at the, uh, we're near, near Metro, just north of Metro someplace. The very first KOA, uh, our sugar beet factory, which tells a, a tremendous history in itself of the development of the Yellowstone Valley. Uh, we'll come back to Lewis and Clark. Uh, the, the farthest point where a steamship ever made it up the Yellowstone, the, the Josephine, one of the steamships of the, the uh, uh, Colson Packet Company. Um, the, the Big Ditch, uh, amazing feat of, of engineering created in the 1880s using shovels and drag lines behind mules. Zimmerman Trail, uh, and those are just some of the highlights along this trail system, uh, stories that we'd like to tell in the future. Picture of uh, the trail system in Swords Rimrock Park. Yellowstone Kelly was a 19th century frontiersman. Here's a picture of him when he was about late teenager. He joined the Union forces when he was 15. He had to lie about his age. He was from Geneva, New York in the Finger Lake region. Never saw any action. Joined at the end of the, close to the end of the war, but he enlisted. He was not a volunteer, so that meant that he had a three-year enlistment. When the war was over, he was shipped out to the frontier, which in those days meant Fort Snelling in Minneapolis, uh, uh, St. Paul region, and then is reassigned to a series of forts on the upper Missouri uh, through the 18, uh, late 1860s. At the ripe old age of 19, he's mustered out as an old-time veteran. And rather than going back to New York to, to uh, live with mom, he decides to stay west. And he moves up to spend some time in, in Canada and then along the Yellowstone and the Upper Missouri, works as a guide uh, to the government, delivers mail, uh, a trapper, a wolfer, a uh, woodhawk. Many of you know uh, woodhawk, who were the the people who would chop the, mostly cottonwood along the river and then sell it to the steamships as they they came up. 
The steamships were terribly inefficient. Sometimes at peak uh, uh, water, they would go through more than a cord of wood every hour. And so it took hundreds and hundreds of cords to make that trip up, up the Missouri and the Yellowstone. Luther Kelly would have probably ended up in the dustbin of, uh, of history, um, and, and he was very well educated, um, but he would have just disappeared. This, by the way, is uh, the, uh, his handwritten manuscript map that is in the collection of the city of Billings and is held by the Yellowstone Art Museum, and there's a reproduction of it down here if anybody wants to come up afterwards and take a look. Anyway, he would have just disappeared, but for what happened at the uh, Little Bighorn on June 25, 1876. Kelly did not fight in the battle and had nothing to do with it. But in September, he was in the area, and Nelson Miles, uh, famous Civil War uh, general, had been tasked with the job of finding the Sioux and the Cheyenne that were responsible uh, for the death of, of Custer and his men and pushing them back onto their reservation. Miles' plan was to conduct a uh, hard winter campaign uh, throughout the winter of 76 and 77 that turned out to be one of the coldest on, on record. But he barely knew the area. And so in September, Yellowstone Kelly is in, wants to meet this famous general. And knowing the customs of uh, the East, uh, that in order to be granted uh, an audience with somebody of much higher social status, you would have your calling card delivered, uh, and not having a calling card, but having a very good sense of humor, Luther Kelly uh, had just killed a large grizzly bear. And so he cuts off the paw of that grizzly bear and signs his name on the pad of the grizzly and has that delivered to Nelson Miles as his calling card. Nelson, that got uh, uh, Miles' attention, and it begins what becomes a 30, 40 year close personal relationship between those two men. Nelson Miles hires Yellowstone Kelly to lead uh, 20, 20 to 30 scouts in this winter campaign, split roughly equally between uh, white Europeans and various tribes, uh, various native scouts. During the, uh, that process, Kelly becomes famous. The press was embedded with uh, Miles' column, and lots of stories are done on, on Kelly. Up here, there's a, a picture or a page taken from uh, the April edition of Harper's Weekly uh, on the campaign that, that features uh, Kelly uh, prominently in it. Uh, Miles loved hiring Kelly because Kelly wrote so well. He was very well educated by uh, the standards of the, of the day. He liked reading Poe and Shakespeare. Um, on, on the trail, one of his, his fondest sayings was, and that we later inscribed on his grave, was um, briskly venture, briskly Rome, which is a, 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 a quote from uh, Goethe. So that's a, a blow up of that column from, or that full article from Harper's Weekly I mentioned. Later the following year in 1877, he's still a scout for Miles when Miles stationed at the Tongue River Cantonment, which becomes Fort Keogh, which becomes Miles City. <laughs> gets a telegraph that Colonel Sturgis has been um, not defeated, but the Nez Perce have yet again uh, escaped the clutches of the U.S. military at the Battle of Canyon Creek, just 10 miles to the west, north of Laurel, Montana here, after being chased by uh, uh, General Howard throughout the west and Sturgis being unable to uh, capture the Nez Perce on the east side of Yellowstone Park, the flight up through the Clark's Fork, and then the Battle of Canyon Creek. Now the Nez Perce are headed north. It's Kelly and his scouts that eventually locate Nez Perce, Looking Glass, and other Nez Perce at the, at the Bear Paw. And then there's the five-day negotiation, and eventually they surrender. Most of them surrender uh, just 40 miles south of 
the Canadian border, an epic, epic tale um, full of tragedy and, and uh, of, uh, but tremendous history. Kelly was there. He had an amazing knack to being in the right place at the right time. And these are pictures of Kelly, Miles, and um, uh, uh, Chief Joseph later in life. So that was not the end of Kelly's story. Uh, for the next 25 years, he's, he remains in the, in the mix. He becomes an uh, important guide in Alaska. He works for the War Department in, in Chicago and in Washington, D.C., raises a company during the Spanish-American War that is shipped to the Philippines where he remains for four years and eventually becomes the treasurer of the Mindanao province in uh, the Philippines. Later, he becomes the chief Indian agent in uh, Arizona on the Apache Reservation, serves her for four years with distinction. Uh, he always had a, 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 a very good manner with the native populations. It's what allowed him to survive the late 60s and through the 70s, trying to maintain uh, uh, good relationships uh, as best he could with all the tribes of the West, and that translated also to uh, the Apache. And uh, he eventually um, retires to, um, well, before he retires, this is uh, taken in 1909. He was a close friend of Teddy Roosevelt's. He was part of Roosevelt's so-called tennis cabinet. This was the group who actually played tennis with Teddy Roosevelt and also a lot of his friends uh, from the far west in the Dakota days. As far as I know, nobody has ever been able to quite figure out how Roosevelt crossed paths with Yellowstone Kelly, but they kept up a correspondence for many years and became uh, relatively close friends, enough to be invited to this send-off party uh, that was given in 1909 for Teddy Roosevelt by the tennis cabinet, and there they gave him this brass uh, mountain lion, and then the yellow uh, line or circle around that one head there is, is uh, Yellowstone Kelly. It's, it's not a halo. He was no angel or, or hero, but uh, uh, that's him there. And eventually he then retires to Paradise, California. This is his long-suffering wife, Alice May, to whom he was married for 40 or 45 years. I always say that uh, they had a great relationship um, because she never saw the guy. <laughs> And uh, they, they have a, a fruit farm in Paradise. Has anybody ever been to Paradise, California? Hey, all right. And, and uh, north of Sacramento, I've been there a couple times. Uh, beautiful, uh, small town. And then he dies, 18, uh, uh, 1928, December, but not before he has had a chance to write his memoirs. And the memoirs are published by Yale University Press which was not easy to get a publisher back then, and certainly not the Yale University Press, but they published his memoirs because he was such a good writer and was so famous and he had such a great story to tell. The memoirs, though, really only told the story of the, that, that early part of his life uh, to shortly after the, the adventures at the Little Bighorn and with the Nez Perce. But he wanted his body to rest in the West, and so, um, uh, in his will, he asked that his body be sent to Montana, but he was smart enough to know that he couldn't trust family members to make arrangements for that. He never had any children. Uh, so before he died, he had a lengthy correspondence with the uh, Montana Historical Society. And the Montana Historical Society made arrangements for his body to be brought to Montana upon his death and to be buried in Billings where he was promised a significant monument uh, that would be built in his honor. And so uh, his body is, as, upon his death, there's a obituary in the New York Times the, the next day. They were clearly ready to go with that. His body is immediately shipped to Billings where it's kept on ice, uh, probably literally in a, in a uh, uh, morgue or in a uh, mausoleum. And 
come June when the ground has, has thawed and almost certainly in conjunction with the uh, events at the commemoration at the Little Bighorn, on June 26, 1929, he is buried on top of the rims. His later biography done about eight years ago by Jerry Keenan, to which we are desperately uh, indebted, this book here, starts with the prologue that says, uh, the procession left the commercial club, that's the old Chamber of Commerce building here in Billings, for anybody who knows that, at 2.30 that afternoon, moving slowly on foot to the soulful dirge and steady thump of muffled drums from the Rotary Club's Boys Band. West along 3rd Avenue, the retinue proceeded, turning south at Broadway to 1st Avenue, north, which would be right out the front door here, then east to 22nd Street, where autos were boarded for the final leg of the journey to the crest of the rim. In those days, there was no 27th Street to take you up to the airport, you had to go around. And as I read this book, after saying I would lead this effort, I immediately read that first part of the prologue and I discover that, wait a minute, it was the Billings Chamber of Commerce that had agreed to take responsibility for his body and here we are 85 years later still having not done our job. So at that point it was clear that uh, uh, the job, it was time to get the job done and that uh, uh, the, the, the stars were in alignment and so it was, it was time. So, um, in, uh, uh, that tells you a little bit about the, the, the historical Yellowstone Kelly, but there was also a, uh, at least one other, and that was sort of this mythological Yellowstone Kelly that is created mostly in the 1950s. Uh, some books are written that are, that are uh, uh, fictional books. That leads to the creation of a Warner Brothers movie that comes out in 1959 starring Clint Walker uh, and called, not surprisingly, Yellowstone Kelly. Some of the original posters from that movie are up here if anybody wants to look at it, including one from the uh, Cinema Sarajevo in Yugoslavia. Uh, I've got one from Argentina. I've got one from Brussels. I mean, the, the people loved uh, the uh, American Westerns of the day. And fortunately, we are still, still have some of those posters. So throughout the, the 50s and 60s, various efforts and, and into the 70s were made to restore or at least treat the Yellowstone Kelly grave uh, better than it was, uh, but all of those uh, failed. Uh, or there'd be small improvements, but they wouldn't last and then it would fall into disrepair again. Uh, a few years ago, this is what the Kelly site looked like. This is the, the, the grave down here. Uh, it was just a nondescript uh, uh, pad of, of concrete with a brass plaque that, was pry, uh, that vandals were trying to pry off at various times to get the $3 worth of, of brass. And a lot of garbage and a lot of gravel and a lot of uh, unpleasant characters late at night that you wouldn't necessarily want to be spending a lot of time with. Those are some pictures from that, uh, of that era. The idea was to create something that would be respectful of Kelly uh, in a beautiful setting, natural, not overdone, that would allow for education, but also for those who didn't care about the history, just a place to enjoy the tremendous views over the Yellowstone Valley. This was an early Art, artist rendering that is pretty close to what's up there uh, now. Fortunately, we had Jerry Keenan's book uh, and we had the movie. So it was kind of a community developer's dream when, Yellow, when Hollywood has already made a movie about the, the subject of, of the effort and you've got a great, recent, accurate biography as well as his old uh, autobiography. So we had a tremendous resources in this effort that not everybody is lucky enough to come by. Uh, we were able to break ground. It was about zero degrees, and so we had to bring in potting soil to make it look like uh, <laughs> actual dirt. But don't tell anybody that. Um, and then in, in November uh, 16, we actually had to break real ground in a real way 
And uh, dirt is not cheap, yes. It's amazing what the money we raised, which is about $560,000, uh, doesn't get you. Uh, it's, uh, it, uh, these things are expensive. So that's uh, the area a little bit, some of the construction pictures. Here we did some of the major earth moving in the fall and even winter of 2016 and then went to town in earnest through the spring and summer of 2017. Pictures of some of the landscaping going in. Again, the goal uh, naturally, a natural setting, respectful of Kelly, his contemporaries, uh, and the land. This is a picture of the grave site uh, during construction, looks that way uh, today. Um, we set everything over the existing structure. We did not do anything to the existing grave. Uh, Professor Urbaniak at the MSUB was uh, um, generous enough to bring his equipment and students up to do, it's not ground penetrating radar, but it's something close to that to confirm that yes, there was something that looks like a body uh, in the grave. And that, it was good we were not doing this for nothing, right? So uh, that is below this uh, uh, polished marble and relatively simple stone up there uh, today. Around it, we have various historical interpretation, I hope you can get up there, and places to recognize donors and team members. As I said, we had to raise $560,000, and so uh, it's critical to have a place to say thank you uh, uh, to both the, the many people who donated a lot of time for about four years and to the donors themselves. Our average gift, as it turned out, was more than $10,000, uh, our average uh, gift. So it was still hard to raise that, but it was a lot easier than going out and selling cookies at uh, a dollar each. Thank you to many of the people who were involved in this effort. Uh, what was a real blessing was that the if we had taken this picture at the beginning of the process, it would be virtually the same picture as we had at the end of the process. Uh, people stayed for the, the long haul, and that, was, that continuity and dedication was incredibly valuable. Uh, these are some pictures from today, or not literally today, but uh, here this spring of what the site looks like. It makes for a great location for uh, events and storytelling and historical interpretation. Kevin Kustra at the Western Heritage Center uses, there's a little atrium up there where he gives uh, tours. And not, to tell not just the story of Yellowstone Kelly, it's kind of a small part, but uh, from there you can see everything on a clear day. You can tell stories of, of the Beartooths, of the Yellowstone, of, of Clark, of of the Crow, of the Nez Perce, of the Northern Cheyenne, of uh, pictograph caves, um, on, on and on and on. Uh, there's also a great ripple effect in our case because, as I say, history connects the world. Uh, back in Paradise, remember, where he died, they also, about by co happy coincidence, one of uh, the leading citizens of that town happened to be watching television late at night and he saw this bad B-quality movie called Yellowstone Kelly. But he was stuck, you know. And then literally the next day he's down visiting his friends at Wilson Marine it, there in Paradise. He knew nothing about Yellowstone Kelly's connection to Paradise. And there is a plaque there at Wilson Marine, which was the boy was the retirement farm of Yellowstone Kelly, and he starts reading this, and he says, "I can't believe it! I just saw a movie on this guy last night. This this, something, this means something." And so, at that point, they dedicated themselves to re rediscovering his story, telling his story at the Gold Nugget Museum, where they now have a, a, a great exhibit on Yellowstone Kelly and also to renaming a six-mile trail that goes through their community, the Yellowstone Kelly Heritage Trail with historical signage along the way. And we were able to lend them much of our historical research, our branding and artwork to make their job easier. And uh, they were a great contributor uh, to our efforts here in Montana. Um, then, 
of course, uh, it doesn't do any good just to have a site. You've got to develop the, the, the tour infrastructure to tell the story. Uh, we've been able to develop a, uh, a touring exhibit uh, with, uh, with banners. Maybe you've seen them at the airport that we can move around town that has been very well received and valuable. We had Yellowstone Kelly week last year to have events around it. That's the crew of the USS Billings. So we took them up as part of our, our uh, uh, promotional efforts. And so as this slide says, so much for the easy stuff, now the hard work begins. It never ends, right? So uh, what we need to do now is find better ways to promote this site and, and Billings generally. Uh, getting on social media and uh, TripAdvisor, uh, developing, we have a website, but keeping that up to date and improving on it. Brochures, which we need, still need to do. Getting attention in local press and national press. Developing those tours. As many of you know, we don't have very good tour infrastructure in Montana. We don't see ourselves as having a uh, professional, uh, 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 that being a, a great profession, and we need to change that. Um, and then we need to just be able to maintain the facility over time. The, it's owned by the city of Billings. It's in a city park, and the city has been good about providing that maintenance. But I'm hoping we can do more, that we can tell the story of some of the native, bring native plants in and tell how Native Americans would use individual plants, what their names were, and, and the, the uses that were put to it, similar to what exists at the Little Bighorn Battlefield uh, now. And of course, fundraising never ends. One way we've been able to do that, we commissioned a spectacular painting of Kelly done by Charlie Fritz. Uh, I was hoping, um, uh, I, I had two artists in mind that would have done justice, uh, both very well nationally known artists, both named Charlie, but Charlie Russell was dead. And so uh, Charlie Fritz uh, was our, our choice number two and he's just a, a spectacular artist. Many of you know him for his book on Lewis and Clark. So anyway, that was kind of park one. We'll move through this one faster. That's up on the rims, down on the, on the river. Um, this is a little information about the second voyage of William Clark and, and the other guy who I, I, uh, I forget who, what his name was. Um, many of you don't know, this is the only known photograph of the return to Lewis of the Lewis and Clark expedition to St. Louis in 1806. There's murmuring out there. Many people know the Yellowstone Valley is as being in a, playing a very important part to the return voyage in 1806, and we know about Pompey's Pillar. Uh, many of you will be going out there. It's, it's Clark's Day today. Um, there is, or not Clark's Day, but uh, it's the what is it called? It's a festival. The festival, okay, and um, and then these are pictures uh, uh, from. Uh, Pompey's Pillar, and we also are learning more about the significance of Canoe Camp, Park City, about 10 miles to the west. One of only three locations now where there's physical evidence of the, of the Lewis and Clark expedition, one being Traveler's Rest, one being Pompey's Pillar, and now at Canoe Camp. This, uh, uh, they're cringing here because they didn't expect to see themselves up here. Ralph and Marlene Saunders are down here. Uh, we'll, we'll click on, but I, I, I just can't steal many of their slides and story without giving them the attention that they uh, deserve in, the, um, in finding Canoe Camp along with, that's Tom Rust, right? Okay, uh, MSUB professor and, and his crew and, and other helpers. Uh, just an amazing story. It's at Canoe Camp where, uh, because of Ralph's incredible um, uh, skills, Ralph, for many of you who don't know him, is a, I had to write this down, photogrammetrist <laughs> and hydrographic surveyor um, by profession, but with Marlena's wife who has her own uh, professional and volunteer accomplishments and have been presenters here today or at this conference. I just refer to them as national treasures uh, for all that they have accomplished over the years. But because of Ralph's efforts in, in locating Canoe Camp, uh, when they went to do excavation there, they identified uh, mercury in what should have been, a, uh, after saying the latrine should be about here and digging and actually finding uh, mercury, uh, which is not a naturally occurring substance, 
they were able to, uh, just as a traveler's rest, identify that as, as mercury that would have been in Dr. Rush's magic pills uh, that many of you who've read Undaunted Courage uh, know about from the expedition. Also, uh, find, we're able to find lead ball uh, in that area that was later, later tested and found to uh, match, the, have the same chemical signature as lead uh, purchased by Lewis uh, before the expedition. Uh, the layout of the uh, uh, area all matches uh, consistent with the military structure of the day that Lewis and Clark were very careful to follow. So anyway, people know about uh, Pompey's Pillar. We're learning more about Canoe Camp. But right here in the middle is what we call Clark Crossing. And what has been uh, newly identified officially with the federal government immediately south of Billings. We have some historical interpretation signage that, that tells this story. And there's uh, uh, William Clark himself on the left and uh, <laughs> me on the right uh, a couple years ago uh, down uh, near this area. And in a nutshell, what this story is, and I apologize for those of you who know the story better than I and will get it uh, more accurate than I, but essentially, when Lewis and Clark are coming up and they spend the winter at the Mandan village on the upper Missouri, Chief uh, Shaheki uh, helps them prepare a map, draws a map of their what they anticipate will be a, a return voyage up the Yellowstone. And this is the Yellowstone River or the Rochejean, the Yellowstone River. And here he identifies a major bend to the north that comes in right at the right after a major river and, a, and again a bend to the north. He suggests that they consider coming overland back to the Mandan villages rather than going all the way to the north if they want to save time. On the return voyage, that seems like a good idea, especially since they have at first about 46 horses and then mysteriously half of them disappear, probably with the help of the crow. And then um, after uh, they are delayed at, or they spend time at canoe camp, uh, the, uh, most of uh, uh, Clark and York and Sacagawea and Charbonneau are in the canoes, but Kelly has, or I'm sorry, um, uh, Clark has uh, uh, identified three men to take the remaining horses overland following that cross-country route identified by Chief Shaheki to meet them then at the Mandan villages. Those horses represent their bank account. They're, they're in rags, but those horses represent tremendous value. So they stay together after canoe camp uh, most of the, the, the group in the canoe and those three men and actually what then becomes a fourth man because the fourth uh, couldn't swim and did not want to have anything to do with those rickety uh, canoes and asked to go overland and Clark says okay. So they then come and they pass the Clark's Fork River. Remember those two major landmarks. Major river that comes in from the south and a major bend to the north. They pass the Clark's Fork, and they see this, a major bend uh, to the north. So Clark adds two and two together and gets five, uh, understandably, and he thinks that this is the location, thinking that the Clark's Fork was what should have been the Bighorn. And so it's premature, but he sends the, uh, the horses across at Clark's Crossing. And, um, uh, this shows uh, uh, Ralph, and these are all Ralph's slides, by the way. Um, the location of Clark's Crossing, the river is now farther to the south. In those days, it would have been farther to the north, where the, the horses were crossed. It's a great story, lots of parts that, that play into that, and it occurred right here, just a couple miles from Billings in this central area that is so important to the return voyage, or telling the story of the return voyage. Um, whatever happened to those men? Well, as many of you know, the next night in a rainstorm, the, all of the rest of the horses, again, mysteriously disappear. And they are left unhorsed uh, with limited resources, and they start walking north toward Pompey's Pillar. Along the way, or as they get there, they, they're able to make two bull boats, and those uh, four men 
jump in the, the two bull boats and bob their way behind the canoes all the way to the what's now modern-day North Dakota and miraculously reconnect with William Clark and the rest of the group uh, there at the, near the confluence of the Yellowstone and the Missouri and nobody uh, is killed. Uh, this is a, a, a climber picture showing the arrival of Sergeant Pryor and Pryor's party Hal Shannon and Windsor uh, with Clark in August 1806 as they bob down the river in their bull boats. Uh, today, Clark's Crossing, here's a, this shows you where Billings is. This shows you uh, the Clark's Crossing area, which is now owned by um, uh, or, or nearby by Western Sugar. And it's on the bend, the big bend of I-90. Bit of a blow up here. This shows the, uh, the area. So the hope is to be able to tell this story and like with the Ellison Kelly Interpretive Site, use it for economic development and just to preserve our, our, our history. Fortunately, Western Sugar owns all this land that is undeveloped and has been incredibly gracious at, uh, in discussions with us and has granted the city of Billings a trail easement for pedestrian and, and, and bike travel around and within their property, which is about 40 acres on this, on this bend. Um, we have been able to secure that easement. We need it to be longer. Now it's, I think, 20 years, and it really needs to be uh, more permanent than that. <clears throat> but the hope is to uh, develop a parking area, place for historical interpretation, uh, picnic tables, and then the trail network within that perimeter uh, where we can identify or put up more signs and benches and, and have a beautiful natural area to, to tell this story. That's the, the, the current vision. Uh, more broadly and more ambitiously, I, I say 2025, my, my hope, my goal, is that this could be a location somewhere along the bend of the river where we could build something that might be analogous to the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center at Great Falls, <clears throat> where the return voyage, which is now largely forgotten, you know, the, the usual narrative of the Lewis and Clark uh, 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 trip is that they spent years and the story goes on and on about how they finally got to the Pacific Ocean and then they caught the next flight back and that was over, you know, that was done. So there's a lot more to it, of course, and uh, this would be a tremendous place to, to tell the story because it's right here at Billings, we have the resources, we have uh, the, many, much of the rest of the infrastructure, and we're right between Canoe Camp and we're right between Pompey's Pillar, and we've got the, our story of Clark's Crossing and could do, I think, a great job. The only problem is we probably need 20 million bucks or so, so if you could leave the check with me on the way out the door, we'd appreciate it. So anyway, that's a little bit about the, 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 the vision uh, for the William Clark Recreation Area, is what we're calling it, and uh, a little bit about the history of the Kelly site.